Good morning, guys. Grab a seat. How you doing? That good, huh? We doing good? All right. All right. Sorry, I just caught y'all probably in a holy moment right there. Uh, my name is Ernie. I'm the pastor here. It is fantastic to be with you this morning uh, to gather as a church and start this new series in Psalms. Uh, is, can I grab that mic stand? This one keeps falling on me, and I'm, it keeps just, it almost dumped it like three times. Here we go. Thank you. Sorry, guys, we've got to do a little moving around. I kept putting my Bible on here, uh, and it kept just like wanting to fall off, and I'm like, that's just not going to be good for us today as we talk about Psalm 1 and the importance of the Bible. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, as maybe you or some of you may know, I'm, I'm not from Texas, but I live some time in Texas, and I had a, a friend that told me a story about how he grew up. He said, hey, I grew up dirt poor, and I was like, what was that like? And he was telling me how his, his grandfather was a farmer, and that he had land, you know, and he, was, and he would farm that land, and what he'd do is he'd buy land, and he'd farm it, and the money he would, he would make from it, he would pay off the land or buy more land. And so he just kept, uh, like, accumulating land. And unlike the Midwest, like, Texas is not exactly, like, fertile ground. It's a desert, you know? And so he's farming in a desert, so it doesn't bring about a lot of revenue or income for him. And by the time he passes away, uh, all he has is the land left. Like, that's all he has. So he divides it up and gives it to his four different kids. And four years after uh, he passes, his kids find out there's oil on the land. It's like right underneath their nose, like right there. It's like maybe our dream, like, man, I wish God would put some oil underneath my house, you know. You probably don't have the mineral rights, so you wouldn't get it anyways. Um, and you're like too small, but he, <laughs> but it's kind of ironic in the story that there were so many times he was like, man, I was, there were so many times in my life where like, I didn't know if we we're going to have dinner and right underneath my feet, right underneath my nose was the answer, this abundance of riches that was right there all of the time. It was always there. And so as I'm sitting there going, man, I'm hungry. I'm not getting anything for Christmas. He's a millionaire and doesn't even know it. Because it's right underneath him that he has just struck gold or struck oil and has just found that out. Um, as I, he was telling me that story, I really started thinking, hey, a lot of Christians live like this. A lot of Christians have this abundance of riches right underneath their nose. This, these beautiful promises from God that we don't live into, that we don't walk, we walk around spiritually impoverished because we don't take advantage of the greatest thing that God could have given us, which is the word of God. It's the word of God. You know, I start poking around on the internet because what I do when I have questions, like we all Google stuff. And I was just wondering, I was like, there's got to be some polls out there about how much Christians do or do not read the word of God. And I was curious about it because in just about every connection group I've ever been in or every accountability group, one of the main questions is keep me accountable to reading the word of God. Keep me accountable to doing it. And the struggle of having, of, of being able to do that. And I was wondering, is that, is that just the groups that I'm in? Is that just the churches that I'm part of? But apparently it's not because as we look through this, around, only about 32% of Christians say they read their Bible every day. And about half of them read it around once a month or a few times a month. And when we read it, we don't spend a lot of time in the Word of God. In fact, it says two-thirds of us spend less than 35 minutes reading or meditating or thinking about the Word of God. 
Let me put that in comparison to this. I've looked at another poll because I was curious about this. How much time do people spend on social media daily? Two and a half hours. So we spend five times more time filling our hearts and mind with, I think, some of the most corrosive, wicked information we can consume. That just makes our souls sick. Like there's, there's more and more studies coming out about social media and how it's just completely to the detriment of people. That it doesn't help you, it hurts you. That we're eating poison. <laughs> Instead of dwelling on the word of God, our phones was three and a half hours if you're curious. That's how much time the average person spends on it. But my question is, is don't you think that has an effect on your life? I mean, just imagine with me for a moment if the word of God was more important to you than checking your Instagram stream or reading those comments on Facebook or getting into an argument on Facebook, which is the silliest thing in the entire planet, and I've been guilty of it too. In fact, I just got off all of them. Like, just imagine with me if we actually took the promises that God says in his word seriously. How different... How, how full of life would your life be? See, we're going to see a picture of that in Psalm 1 today. That God makes a promise to the believer that this is what the word of God does in a man and a woman's life. This is what it causes them to look like. And I hope, my hope is this morning that we would be compelled to live that kind of life. That many of us would be like, I don't experience that right now as a Christian. I don't experience that right now in my walk. For me, it's burdensome to read the Word 15 minutes a day. It's, it's burdensome to me. And by the way, if you are growing in your faith and you're reading it more and more and you're like, well, I don't read 35 minutes yet. I guess I'm doing a bad job. Great job for reading the Bible. Like, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to go, don't give your mind and heart to these things that are not adding to your life, but taking away from it. God's word wants to add to your life. It wants to give to you where the world wants to take from you. And see, I hope by that, with us looking at Psalm 1, we would have a fresher view about what the word of God is. It's not a chore. It's not a checkbox. It's not something that we should do. It's not vitamins that we should take. It's the word of God written to us for, all, for us to flourish in him. And so my hope is that we would begin to dig in, that we would scratch beneath the surfaces, that we'd take hold of this thing that is so right underneath our nose and to see the gold, the beauty, the life that waits for us that it wants to give us. But before we do that, let's pray. Jesus, set our hearts on you. Point our lives to the things that are important to you. Press us in the direction that you want us to go in because, God, a kind of God that has died for our sins and has invited us into relationship with him, you love us more than we love ourselves. You want for us more than we want for ourselves. So, God, I truly believe that the love you have for us is, the love, is greater love than I have for myself. And so I'm going to trust your opinions. I'm going to trust your statutes. I'm going to trust your commands. I'm going to trust your words more than my own or the world around me or what I see in culture or in life. Lord, I want to be totally transformed by what I see in your word today. So I want to open my heart, Lord. Let me open my heart and begin to receive the word of God at this moment. God, we love you. We praise you. Amen.
Now, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair close to you. You can grab it. We'd love for you to take this. Open up the Psalm 1 with me because that's where we're going to be. You can pull it out on your phone if that's what you're most comfortable. We read out of the ESV if you're pulling it out of your phone for the first time. That's a, a version that we think is readable in the English language. You know, some of you get Bibles from your, your parents like 10 years ago that are King James. Like, no one talks like that anymore. All right, it's not, like we want to give you something that you can read and open up the Psalm 1. It's in the middle of the Bible. You'll find it, chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want to give you all some information about what the Psalms are. The Psalms are prayers written in Hebrew poetry. That's what they are. They, they, they historically cover periods of about a thousand years with several different contributors, lots of contributors, from the time of 14 B.C. to 450 B.C. That's what we see. The Old Testament books of, of the Psalms are most vivid representative of the faith of individuals in the Lord. The Psalms are the inspired response of human hearts to God's revelation of himself in law, history, and prophecy. They are hugely influential, and they have a lot to add to our life. In fact, Christians sing them regularly because we want to sing these prayers and songs that, 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 faith, that people in the faith have kept and have been inspired by God. And so I'm going to read through the first six verses. Actually, there's only six verses. And then we're going to get into it, okay? It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of a sinner, nor sits in the seat of a scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaves do not wither. And all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, in this psalm, the psalm writer gives us two paths. In the first path, he says, hey, this is the way of the blessed life. This is the way of the blessed life. This is the path of the blessed life. That Christians, that Christ followers are influenced by God and not the world. You notice he uses the word blessed man. You're like, what is that? Well, I need to be clear here. In this chapter, he is not telling us how to be a blessed man. He is telling us what a blessed man does. You understand that? I need to say that because some of you are going to start reading through this and say, in order for me to be blessed, I need to read my Bible. In order for me to do all these things, in order for me to be in right relationship with God, I need to do these things that are written down here. That is not what Psalm 1 is doing. Psalm 1 is written as an instruction sheet for Christ's followers, for those who follow God. This is what life should look like, and this is where you're going to flourish, and this is where you're not going to flourish. So in this first path, he says, it's not about being a blessed man. It's what does a blessed man do? What does it look like to walk as a blessed man? In order to be a blessed man, here's, this is what it is, okay? It, you don't have to do anything. You have to believe in someone. You have to believe that Jesus was exactly who he says he was and what the scriptures tell us that he is. is that he was the son of God. That he showed up and lived the life that we were meant to live, that we never could live. That he lived a perfect, sinless life. In every aspect. And then on the cross, God placed the sins of the world on Jesus, his son, and poured out his judgment on Christ. As if Christ committed those sins. So now, those who believe that Jesus was the son of God and that he has died for our sins and that he rose from the dead, those people now are accredited God's righteousness as if they actually lived that life. You have swapped stories. 
Now your righteousness, what has made you a blessed person, is not what you do, but what Christ has done and whom he's made you and named you to be. Amen. Is that not good news? So as he says, this is the blessed man. He starts talking about what the blessed man does, and no, but he starts by saying what he doesn't do first. You notice that? And notice the progression. He says, the blessed man, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of a sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer. Notice the progression from walking to standing to sitting. Each stage is more permanent with the group it's hanging around. Now this isn't the sermon I tell you like, hey Christians, if you hang around trash, you're going to smell like trash. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Your mom's probably told you that, all right? It's like, that's not what I'm saying here. But I want us to look at these very quickly. What he says at first when he says, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. If you replace the word counsel with advice, it really helps us understand what he means. See, because many of us as Christians, the main intake for advice, for information, is not the word of God in our life, but it's the world. It's what does social media say? It's what does culture say? What does this person who is influential says? Sometimes it's even what your pastor says. You know what, I may give good advice, but it better line up with the word of God. You understand that? You hear that? Because there is advice. The world is just hurling advice at you over and over, counseled you over and over and over and over again. It tells you what is good is bad. It tells you that marriage isn't sacred. It tells you it's greater to be, it's wiser to be greedy than generous. It tells us what matters about your spouse is what income bracket he's in. It tells us to devalue both born and unborn people. The world is constantly screaming through the news, through social media, through your life, through classes, through all these things, is telling you this is a way to live. And what the psalm writer is saying is a blessed man does not listen to those voices. Now, let me be very clear. What I'm not saying here is that you go to your mechanic and you go, are you a Christian? And he says, no. And you go, well, I'm not listening to you about my transmission because you don't know what you're talking about. Students, I'm not telling you to go to your math teacher and say, well, I'm not listening to you because you're an atheist or something like that. That's foolish. What I am saying is this. Be careful who sits at your wisdom table. Be careful who you let speak into your values and convictions in your life in real meaningful ways. The person who has been blessed by God and transformed by God listens first and foremost to the word of God. And he doesn't listen to those who give bad advice, who their life is on a completely different trajectory, which we're going to see in verses 4 through 6. He says, so when he talks about walking, he's like, hey, don't, don't listen to that voice. And then the next thing he says is, or stands in the way of a sinner. You see that progression? First we're listening to the advice, but now we're beginning to act like them. We're beginning to be transformed by them. That we're beginning to, our pattern of life begins to mirror the patterns of everyone else around us. Guys, if you're a Christ follower in this room, you should be different than the world. You should enjoy different things in the world. You should stand out in the world. There should be moments that you're at cultural events where you don't quite fit in at that moment. Because your life is, like they're celebrating something, your life is radically tied up in something completely different. And your workplaces, 
Now, here's the good news, Christians. Here's the beautiful thing. That life, if you start standing in the way of a sinner, you won't be able to do that long as a Christ follower. Because God has placed his Holy Spirit within you. And what the Holy Spirit says is, I will not share the room of your heart with this thing that you're worshiping. And by the way, I as the Holy Spirit, I'm not going anywhere. It's going to leave. That you'll begin to feel conviction about those things. Because you can't, it's not who you are anymore. You've already died to yourself. You're new in Christ. So the blessed man, he doesn't stand he doesn't stand in the way. He doesn't live as he used to live. He doesn't live in the way that, that God saved him from. And he doesn't, he's not seated with the scoffer. The word scoffer means those who hold nothing sacred. Scoffing at God and all that associate with him. To sit with them, this gives a picture that is greater than walking or standing. It's a picture of I am associated with them, and when people see them, they see me. I am now not only hiding my Christian values and convictions, I am now walking and living a life where people see me actually living in opposition of that. Do you see the progression in here? But the blessed man, the man that has the Holy Spirit, the person that knows God, and has been saved by the blood of Christ. This is not your path. And when you find yourself walking down that path, you need to know that you're on the wrong road. He says the blessed man does something different. See, first he talked about what he doesn't do, but look, look, look what he does do. Look back at the passage. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, for you, if you're new to church, that word law may sound like not fun at all. You may be like, is that a part of the Bible that we don't like to read? Uh, the word law right there just means teaching. It means that the blessed man, what it's saying is the blessed man loves the teaching of God and finds comfort and delight in its words and its commands, and its promises. That the blessed man, what does he do? He delights in the word of God. He loves the word of God. Many of us, that's not us. Even though we know the Lord, even though we've been transformed, many of us sometimes, like, we see it as a chore. And I believe we see it that way because we miss what it is. See, for some of you, this is like, like the safety book you should read before you start up a lawnmower or something. Or it's like the health book that you bought in order to like eat differently and cook food differently that you've got four pages into. But what this really is, guys, is the words of God Almighty, the creator. It's not a rule book of a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's an invitation. It's a picture. It's an instruction book about how to fit in with God now that you're in relationship with him. It's a story of his rescue of humanity. It's a picture of your future in eternity. It is the greatest narrative you could have ever written, that anyone could have ever written. Could you have named a better author than God? A more impactful story than Christ. 
a better future than Revelation. See, guys, if we truly understand, when you read through Revelation, like Revelation 20 and 22, all that, and you see the world to come that God is going to create, you would be giddy with anticipation if we actually truly believed it to our bones that it was true. We would not be able to hold it back. I remember when I was young in my faith and I was reading through these words, and there were so many times I was like, this cannot be true. This is so amazing and so beautiful. Sometimes we lose that view of God's word. And I think some of us really struggle with loving the word of God because of how we read it. We read this through the lens of culture sometimes. And it causes us to struggle with the word of God that we shouldn't have to struggle with. We look at it and go, well, I have a good idea about what I think is good and right and love and true and all these things because of how I was raised or where I've been. And then when, those, when God's culture bounces up against our culture, we're worried if he's got the wrong culture. In reality, we should, we should view the world through the lens of Scripture. God has the right to say what is true, good, and right. It comes with the job description of being God. All right? When you create everything, it comes in your job description that you can do that. But notice what else the person, he doesn't just love the word of God, but he's transformed by it. He's shaped by the word of God. See, the godly person finds counsel not from the world or what's from popular or what their friends are saying, but what the word of God says. The the blessed person sets the pattern of his life, not by what the neighbors did, but what the word of God says. He doesn't scoff at God. He delights in God. The word of God is not meant to just be read. It's meant to transform you. It's meant to change us. And look at the promise. Look what it's changing us to. Not little bots. Not little like minions. He says this in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by a stream of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaves does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. Don't you want that to be a picture of your life? Students, does that feel like a picture of your life during finals? No. I got a verbal no. Yeah, come on. Tell me about it. The promise of the blessed man is that, that delights in the word is life abundantly. Do you understand that, what God has given you? He's not trying to put a weight on your shoulders. He's not trying to add something to your checklist. He's trying to add to your life by creating relationship with him. The picture is this, that you would be like a tree planted by water. Does a tree planted by water ever want for water? What do those trees look like? I can tell you this, even in West Texas, All right, where it's a desert, the place that you see trees are around rivers and creeks and even dried up ditches. It's the only place. Do you realize what the word of God is saying? That even when you live in the desert of a world spiritually, the gushing life of the word of God can bring life to you to flourish, even in the midst of a desert. If only we would drink from it. Because the promise is, what does God want you to be? Like a tree that gets its water and yields its fruit in season and its leaves do not wither. That it would sustain us and bless us and encourage us. In fact, he even uses language that in all that he does, he would prosper. Do you see the path that God is pointing you to? So misrepresented in our world today. 
that God is calling you to your good, to your best life, to life abundantly. See, when I read through John 15, I really believe that Jesus was thinking, this is Ernie's opinion, when he was talking about the vine and the branches, I really do believe that he was thinking about uh, Psalm 1. As he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And in a couple of verses later, in verse 10 and 11, he says, I've given you these commandments. I've given you these things and I've spoken them to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That the word of God is not meant to imprison you, but to set you free and breathe life into you. So Christian, why should you read the word of God? Why should you read it regularly? Listen guys, if you just ate occasionally, we'd be worried about you. But God said this, he said, man does not live on word alone, but every word of the living God. Why? Because God wants you to live a joy-filled life that is founded in him. And so many times we're looking to the desert that has nothing to offer to bring life where it can't be brought. Now let me be clear about something because let me tell you what I'm not saying. Psalm 1 is not saying health, wealth, and prosperity. There are churches that peddle that and it is totally anti-gospel. You understand? Like what this passage is not saying, hey, uh, uh, Ernie, if you read your Bible more, then I would bless you more. If, if you prayed a little bit more, maybe your child wouldn't get sick. That is absolutely anti-gospel. And the reality for the Christian in the room is that God has already planned a future for you that is more prosperous than you can ever imagine. That you are written in the book of life. You have been transformed from death to life and will reign with God in heaven forever. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness, as Peter says in 1 Peter. You are already rich, even though you may feel impoverished at this moment. But God will bless you, but he has blessed us already in Christ. Now look at verse 4. We see the other path. He says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Life, this is what he's saying. Life without God has no value, has no future, and misses out being with God. See, the last verses, he said, that those that depend on God are like a tree, but he says the wicked are like chaff. And like, Ernie, who are the wicked? Who are the wicked? Well, the wicked is every single one of us apart from Christ. And that may be like, Ernie, that's really harsh words, wicked, right there. That's really, like, you're going to say I'm wicked? Like, I can see, like, people who, like, serial killers, those people are wicked. Like, people who are children, those people are wicked. Like, come on, you put me next to them, we're in the same group. 
You know what the problem is with that? Is that you're making a comparison between you and another person who is also wicked. And you're talking about the degree of wickedness there. God doesn't compare you to one another. He compares you to him. And when he puts his rap sheet next to yours, it is very clear that you are not him. And the distance between him and you and me is infinitely greater than we could ever deal with on our own. But when he talks about the wicked in this passage, we're talking about those who have refused to accept Jesus. Those who live a life in rebellion against God. And he says those people are like chaffed in the wind. Like, I, I don't know what that word is. Chaffed was left over from wheat. They would throw it up in the air and just little bits of it would float away. It had, it had no significant value. It had no significant life. It added nothing and was sought for nothing. And when he says, hey, listen, the way, the pathway of the wicked that lives a life rejecting God is a worthless life to live. It doesn't bear any fruit like a tree. It doesn't experience any of the goodness. It doesn't grow. It's gone. And he talks about the finality of that. He says, he says in the next verse, he says, and the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor a sinner in the congregation of the righteous, meaning that we have a life spent rejecting God has no future. That one day, guys, we will all stand before God and there will be a judgment and he will, he will divide the righteous from the wicked. And the righteous will stand with God in judgment of the world. And the wicked will be under the judgment of God. Like, Ernie, this is not a fun sermon. But you need to understand this. What makes you, what makes us wicked or righteous is not you need to read your Bible more. You need to do more of what God says. What makes us righteous is that we fall underneath the blood of the Lamb. That we trust in Jesus Christ and that he has accomplished for us what we could not have accomplished ourselves. So the wicked in this story are people who have refused to do that for a lifetime. And now standing before God, God being just, the just judge will execute justice and will send them away from his presence for eternity. They won't stand. Not only is the pathway of the wicked leading you to no future, but it is also you miss out on God. Look at verse 6. He says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That word know is not just intellectual knowledge. It actually means, it actually means like to have intimate concern and knowledge of where that person is. Like it's the idea of like a mother watching a child who just learned to walk. And it's just like on the edge of her seat. And like whenever he's about to fall, like going to run and grab it. Grab the child. That's how our God overlooks those who are the righteous. Not because of their behavior, but because of Jesus' behavior. And he says he knows their way, past, present, and future. But the path of the wicked perishes. They miss out on the greatest relationship they could ever had. See, Christian, the psalmist is writing this for a reason, especially to you Christians in the room. What he's writing is this, is don't walk a life that you're not. That you are the blessed man. You are the one 
that God has chosen, that God has called out. You are the one that has been made clean. Live in this pattern of life, and this is your instruction book. This is the way that you find intimacy of God. Don't live a life that God saved you from because you're not the wicked anymore. Now, some of you have been in this room, and, and you've come to church, you've been around church, or somebody invited you to church, and if I was to ask you to question, what does it look like for you to be righteous, you would start naming things that you need to do different in your life. And you are totally missing it. Because you can't do enough. See, in this person right here, you may realize that that is my future because I have not accepted Christ as my Savior. I am not following Jesus. Here's the beautiful thing, is that Jesus longs for all to be saved. And it is not too late to get on a different path. It is not too late to stop trying to earn salvation through your good works and then just point to Jesus's work on the cross and say that is enough I'm going to trust in that all you have to do is confess the truth that yes you have broken God's law you have to in the truth that God has died for sins and that he rose three days later and say God just be the king of my life I'm going to follow you I'm going to walk the path of the blessed man. I'm not going to walk the path of the wicked. Mercy Hill Church, I want you to be like a tree planted by a river that yields fruit in your life and your life doesn't wither. I want you to experience the goodness of God even in the midst of, of absolute sacrifice and absolute difficulty. Because your future that you find in the word of God is greater than anything you're bumping up to in this life. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to gather and to make much of you. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word that points us to the way that we're meant to live and flourish in life. God, Christianity is not just a ticket to heaven and then we just wait till we get there. Eternity starts now in our hearts and minds and you have something for us now. Lord, when we see your words more worthy and greater and more honorable and more wiser than ours, can we stop arguing with you and start following you? Can we believe this word that says this is what you're calling us to be? And may we press into that with all of our life. We love you. Amen.